Hello, babies. We right back at you again. This is your boy, Jimmy Dodge, a.k.a. everybody's favorite uncle, Uncle Jimmy. And I'm here with the big dog, J-Dub, Big Sexy himself, Jason Whitlock. What's up, big baby? This is going to be our last preview segment before we really get going on July the 6th. I'm not submitting to any more of these inquisitions or did I say that right? Inquisitions of yours. This I'm not going to be interrogated by you. I'm not going to be interrogated by you. Any, this is it. So you better make this one good. Hey, I'm, th- th- this is the good one. I, I stayed up and worked on this one because I felt <laughs> like, okay, we've gone through everything. But on a very serious note, something that we didn't talk about, man. We, we didn't talk about, uh, I guess, biblically, they called it the dark ages. The, the, dark, the, the dark, dark ages, the dark years. It was about <laughs> 2013, 2015. Things was just bad for you out there. Things, you know, what, what was happening? You was at ESPN. They was paying you a grip. They bought you to ESPN to build the undefeated. You was down with the ESPN president. What would you call him? Skipper John? John Skipper was the president of ESPN, yes. Okay, I mean, that's your boy that you and he, you took him out, uh, hooked up with you, you and him hung out, and suddenly he... Uh, Came down with a cocaine extortion. You know. <laughs> no, that, that was... He, he got mixed up with blows I, for holes or something. <laughs> I don't know what happened. I had nothing to do with that. I was not involved. I was gone. I, I think left the word ESPN. for that is called allegedly. I was... I would left ESPN in 2015. I don't think Skipper got in his problems until two, three years later. The, the blows for holes incident had nothing to do with me. Boy... <laughs> Nothing to do with me. You separated from that one quicker than than, than OJ's family separated <laughs> from him. <laughs> OJ's God. family stood by him. You I'm talking about the white ones. Okay, come <laughs> on, man. <laughs> oh, the Simpsons. Or the, I'm sorry, the Brown family. Yeah. I, <laughs> All right, man. Let's keep on growing here. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about your boy, Bill Simmons. Bill Simmons had the Gratlin. Is that did I say that right? The Grant Gratlin. Is that right? He had Grantland. The Grantland, okay. Grantland. The Grantland, all right? And you had (laughs) the undefeated. Now, from what I understand, the way I heard it, Jim, we getting ready to take over the world. Dude, what happened? You've unloaded a mouthful there in terms of what happened. Man, we could could sit here and talk about that all day. I'm Uh, getting paid by the eye. Go ahead, take your time. I'm trying to, let's see, where do I want to start with that? Because it's funny, you mentioned Bill Simmons and Grantland. That, 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 I've never really addressed that or talked about it in Everybody full. else seemed to, why not you? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody else talks about the rig story or whatever, because one of the first things that hampered me at ESPN that I've never talked about, and I, I don't, people, I hope they hear me in context. I'm not trying to rip anybody. I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus. I'm just trying to tell you what actually happened in real time and in reality. At that time, I'm a big Bill Simmons fan, supporter, Mm -hmm. uh, when I come back to ESPN. And and Bill Simmons certainly pretended to be a big fan and supporter of mine. But I learned very quickly that some things outside of his control, but, but some things inside of his control were problematic for me. And and so what I would first and foremost say is like, and this is just me speaking honestly, this isn't me trying to take a shot at anybody. Bill Simmons' reputation and the way he operated it inside of ESPN caused me a great deal of problems. And again, 
through no fault of Bill's, through no fault of mine, but Bill's relationship with all the executives there, except for John Skipper, was not very good. When I first got back to ESPN in 2013, I had to come up to Bristol, Connecticut, and meet with a dozen mid-level, high-level executives at ESPN. And it, okay. Meetings were set up over two days, and you meet with this person for an hour, you meet with that person for an hour. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that every single executive, all they wanted to talk to me about was Bill Simmons. And all they wanted to talk to me about was, don't you be like Bill Simmons. And don't cause us the headaches that Bill Simmons causes us. I went through two days of meetings where it had to have been orchestrated. It had to have been planned. The executives had to have talked amongst themselves that Jason Whitlock's coming to town and we're going to beat it in his head that we don't want him to be anything like Bill Simmons. They saw me and Bill Simmons as friends and assumed that I operated the same way as Bill Simmons. And they were dead set in making sure that didn't happen. I knew nothing about, and still don't to any real degree, understand how Bill Simmons operated. I've heard people tell stories and things like that, but I've never heard Bill's side of the story, and there's always two sides to a story, so I don't jump to any conclusions. But I know that I met with 10 to 12 ESPN executives who had clearly coordinated how they were going to meet with me initially and how they were all going to be of the same message. You're not going to be like Bill Simmons. We're not going to tolerate it. And that message was hit to me loud and clear because of my relationship with Bill and because of the appearance that we were close. Again, when I say, like, me and you are close. Right. Bill Simmons and I had a working, friendly relationship in the media where we might talk to each other once a month, see each other someplace and be friendly and supportive, but we weren't really close. And everybody assumed I was like Bill Simmons. And I'm like, hey, man, I don't know what Bill Simmons has done to y'all, but me and Bill Simmons are not the same. Bill, super talented. I'm a fan of his, but I've been working in the newspaper industry or had been for 20 years, I'm a trained, practicing journalist. Bill, and I'm not saying one is better than the other, although I have an opinion about which is better than the other, but Bill came up as a blogger with no editors, no system he had to work to, no reporting structure he had to report to, nothing. It was just Bill and his blog, and then he jumped over to ESPN page two where Skipper and a guy named John Walsh, who were a high level, who was another high level executive, they made it so he didn't have to really operate within the structure. There, there was no editing of his work that he didn't approve. And we just came up completely different, had two different philosophies. And I was sitting there like, hey, man, I wasn't saying this at the time, but I was just like, man, I've been doing this for a long time in real journalism have won a bunch of awards, have accomplished a lot of things. I'm not Bill Simmons. I'm a journalist, a proven one, at the highest level in sports writing. Bill is in a super talent. 
an entertainer, a blogger. Mm-hmm. He, he's not, so don't, don't hold us to the same standard. So that was one. I was coming into, and everybody, oh, Whitlock's this terrible guy, and Whitlock uh, couldn't get the undefeated off the ground. I ran into such an incredible headwind of a group of editors and executives who had really no problem with me, but the problem was like, oh, he's just like Bill Simmons, and we're not going to deal with this. And so that was part of the headwind I was running into. Jason, real quick, did you ever ask the people to clarify what it was that they meant by that? I mean, they just kept saying, I mean, because what what do you mean by that? Did you ever ask them, what the hell is Bill Simmons doing that you don't want me to do? Nah, I mean, because they would give examples. I'm not going to. But again, when you're only hearing one side of the story, trust me, Bill's got his side of the story. That's why I'm not going to really air any of that out because I don't know the truth. I know what people were saying, Mm -hmm. but all I kept saying was like, hey, man, that's not me. I am. You wanted to be judged by your own merits. Yes. Yes. And look, there's some headache to me. There's no question. I'm headstrong and a lot of things, but editing, chain of command and all that work. None of that's my problem. That's because people don't realize that you have a strong Christian faith. And that means that you don't need to be led into temptation. You can find it all by yourself. <laughs> that That's true. But no, on a, on a more serious note, it's just like I'm a journalist and I'm right. going to operate like a journalist. And so that was one area and factor. Then the other area and factor is Bill's an only child. Bill... Bill's protective of his space. Okay. Bill, I don't think, wanted me to start anything that resembled anything like Grantland. He felt like that was an infringement on his territory. And I went on his podcast and tried to respectfully, in the moment, answer his questions that he was asking. And I tried to respect, he was, well, what's it going to be like? And I just trying to be respectful of him and what he had accomplished. Mm-hmm. I said, well, it's going to be kind of like a black grant. Oh, I remember that comment. Yeah. And Bill, behind the scenes, immediately started complaining that I said this on his podcast. And I wouldn't say immediately. Maybe he waited 24 or 48 hours. Some of his underlings on the Grantland staff came to him complaining. The handful of it. And I don't mean this in a negative way, but I'm just saying it actually his couple of token black writers or whatever uh, were upset. (laughs) (laughs) Easy, Jay. Damn, that that is accurate. The the complaint you just leveled is accurate, and it it does make me look like a hypocrite, but I'm just being honest. Uh, What, Rembert Brown or whoever these guys were Mm -hmm. that were trying to be the black voices at ESPN while working for Grantland, I think they felt threatened by me and what we were going to do at the undefeated and felt like, oh, he's going to black granted. Well, what are we? Is he saying we're not black and blah, blah. I'm trying to have a conversation with Bill Simmons, trying to make a statement that would connect and explain what I'm doing to his audience. I'm not trying to infringe on their territory. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Bill, somebody put a battery in Bill's back and he started running around. We're like, it's going to be the black grandland and we're offended by that. And the next thing you know, him and his little group, are pushing that out to all the blogosphere and all the bloggers are now right. Whitlock says Black Grantland and everybody and all the little white liberal bloggers are offended 
uh, that someone, oh my God, someone's trying to do something like Bill Simmons is doing. This black man can't do that. And next thing you know, that gets hung around my neck. But <clears throat> at the end of the day, I had all these executives that hated Bill pushing against me. And quite, and I'm not saying this to be super negative, but Bill Simmons was pushing against me too. Mm. And uh, throwing banana peels everywhere he could. And so I'm stuck in a quagmire that John Skipper and I left me in. And people will hear this like, oh, Whitlock won't take the blame for, you know, how he screwed up. What I'm just giving you the facts. I I'm giving, because it was so funny that people started writing things and the guy, the guy Deadspin started writing things. Like no one wants to work for Whitlock. He hasn't hired anybody in a year. And that's because John Kozner, who was my direct, the guy I directly reported to, one of John Skipper's top underlings, he wouldn't allow me to hire anybody for a year. <laughs> I couldn't hire anybody. There was a bunch of people that wanted to work for me. I wasn't allowed to hire any of them for a year. I wasn't authorized. They turned it into a story of no one wants to work with Whitlock. Black writers don't want to work with Whitlock. And I'm going to say this last thing that really undercut me. John Skipper's a nice guy. That ended up undercutting me, the fact that he's a nice guy. And he wants to be loved by everybody. He has good intentions. Yeah, good intentions. Road to hell paid with good intentions. He wants to be loved by everybody, but particularly black people. He's a liberal. The last thing he wants to be is called a racist. And so anybody that was black and a sports writer could call John Skipper gain access to him through email or conversation, and John Skipper's going to tell them you're the greatest thing that he's ever seen, and you're the best writer, and boy, oh boy, ESPN would be honored to have you. And then they would be turned over to me. I would have to evaluate their work and whether or not they were a fit for what we were trying to do with the undefeated. Some of these people just weren't any good. And <laughs> I was left to say, hey, man, this isn't up to the standards we're going to try to do here at The Undefeated. And they're thinking, well, John Skipper and one of their top black executives, Rob King, told me I was great. And so I was always the bad guy because I'm honest. And they ended up, after they pushed me out, they ended up hiring a couple of these people, and they were just as bad as I, as I said they were. This isn't a startup. This is ESPN. We're here trying to hire the best and brightest not beginners, not people that are going to take a bunch of major work to get their work up to speed. So it sounds like I've just given off a laundry list of excuses. I'm telling you what actually happened, and I'm telling you what I actually dealt with. There's not many things I would do differently other than the secretary I hired. <laughs> you ended up. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know, man. You, yeah. you, you, you're trying to act like uh, uh, Bill Simmons was your... Biggest problem. That, that Bill Simmons wasn't I, your only problem. I, I didn't say it was my biggest problem. Well, I mean, because your, your insurance rates were through the roof. What do you mean? I mean, from where I understand it, every time you walked out the house, you was getting rear-ended more than Boy George. <laughs> what the hell you got to say about what the hell's going on in your life? What the hell was going on with you, boy? Every time you stepped the hell outside, somebody was wanting a piece of your ass. <laughs> Hell, you look like a little young, fat-ass Tevin Campbell. What the hell's going on? What happened to you? Let me see if I fully 
What do you? Hold on, wait, wait, wait. Let me ask you this. Okay, yeah. let, let, let me change this story. Let, let, let's talk about your boy, uh, the boy from Deadspin, the White Howard. <laughs> no, the White Howard was NBA. Greg Howard. Greg, Greg Howard. Howard yeah. Deadspin. Yeah. The writer who wrote all them pieces uh, 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 clowning you uh, uh, back in the day. What, what's the deal with him? What <sighs> <sighs> yeah. well, you don't think I remember people's names? It's complicated. Okay. That, that, that's that's complicated. So that means it was a good question. Not the worst question. <laughs> not the worst question. But look, yeah, there was a lot of hit pieces written on me, and I, Greg Howard, was the leader of that pack. There was a dude. There the was dude. a guy from Newsweek. Yeah. Who Winston. called, whatever his name, what was his name? Winston, Winston. Ross. Winston Hey, Ross. man, that dude called me and talked to me. I told you, that dude called me and talked to me. While I was working security, he dude talked to me for two hours, asking me about you, and never once wrote one quote about me in that Newsweek article. <laughs> what in the, I mean, how you going to interview me and not get one quote out to do? I wasn't getting them kind of pieces written at that time. You had to be a critic of mine to be quoted. Hold on, what's uh, that? What's that other one? Reeves, Reeves Witherspoon, Reeves, Reeves, what's Reeves, his, Reeves Witherspoon. No. Yeah, what's his name? The, the dude from New York that wrote that big old long ass ten thousand five hundred word essay on you. You getting them confused? That was Greg Harper, Reeves oh. Winderman. I okay. think you're talking about for the New Yorker. Yeah, look, man, there was a lot of hit pieces written on me because I had a why because I had a position that somebody with my point of view wasn't supposed to have. Unless you are going to be leading the discussion that black people were victims of everything that's happened to them, you're not supposed to have a job in the mainstream corporate media where 30 to 40 people report to you and you're doing high-end journalism. In order to have that job, you must promote the idea that black people have no agency, no power, that white liberals are their saviors, and any problem that black people have is because racist, conservative, Christian white people. But they were doing this back then? I mean, we're talking about 2013, 15. They was doing this back then? I was the person like, yes, because I, I was the person on the front line. I did not know that. Yes, <laughs> I was the person on the front line telling y'all like, hey, man, they coming for me right now. You'll be next. I was waving my hands and trying to tell everybody, like, Chuck, laugh now. You're going to be crying later. That this, I was at the, I can't say the very beginning, but close to the very beginning of this cancel culture, I was targeted for cancellation. Greg Howard, the little black kid from Deadspin, his stories were being ghostwritten by Tommy Craggs and... Uh, Tim Marchman, this little cabal of white liberals were ghostwriting his stories. And I have it in right. The dude wrote some stuff about me on Deadspin where he he argued that my criticism of RG3, now just think, think about this. Okay. RG3, I think his second year, or after his rookie year, second year, I'm pretty sure, it wasn't his rookie year, I started saying that RG3 is kind of caught up by the cameras and the lights and the fame. And that I basically started saying RG3 is going to crash and burn. He had his face on the video game. Yeah. I started saying that he was going to crash and burn. And here we are. That's 
I don't know, 2013, 2012. I can't remember when. He was it having was. a great career up until you said that. <laughs> I've been proven right. That's what I mean. But at that time in 2013, this Greg Howard dude wrote some piece for Deadspin where he said that I basically called RG3 the N-word. And he didn't say the N-word. He wrote it out with an E-R at the end. Or maybe with an A, I can't remember. But he wrote it on Deadspin. And this was a kid who I had been nothing but nice to. This was somebody I was talking about, not yet. This is somebody that I was talking about working for the undefeated. Mm -hmm. I got emails the whole nine yards of how I treated him and how he responded to my thanking me, blah, blah, blah. And so when I called him, I was like, dude, why are you making this accusation that I'm calling RG3 the N-word? Everybody knows how I feel about the N-word. I mean, this is some, this ain't right. Mm -hmm. And Greg Howard writes me back an email that I still have where he said, I didn't write that. Tommy Craggs and then put that in my story. I was in the hospital at the time fighting some illness and they talked me into putting that in. He apologized to me the whole night. This is all an email. Okay. And then he writes a story later, Craig's and these guys getting to write this just about me. It's 10,000 words. And he starts it out by saying he's in a hospital bed fighting for his life. And Jason Whitlock's on the phone yelling and screaming at me, cussing me out. All because of this, you know, I wrote this or that in some story. Jim, Was that true? No. He wasn't fighting for his life. I have no idea. He was in the hospital, but I do have the email or text message that he sent me thanking me for the way that I treated him when he was sick and said his family appreciated it. That's what happened in real life. I was nothing but nice to this kid. He goes on to write this story like I'm Attila the Hun, Jack the Ripper, O.J. Simpson, I don't know who, yelling and screaming at him while he's on his deathbed and then goes on and writes all this other bullshit about me. He was the first kid where I was like, because this was a dude with some serious identity issues mm. based around being a little nerdy black dude, based around, I believe, just don't do it. His sexual identity. He did it. And and then it comes out, eventually, you know, year two, three years later, after all this blows over, he ends up on some list that was circulating around the media about dudes that had done aggressive, sexually aggressive things to women. And he was on this bad journalist list or whatever. I ended up digging up his arrest when he threw a beer bottle at some woman at a bar and he got arrested for it. This dude had his own issues that he was working through. The left wing, because of, you know, the hit job he carried out on me, they rewarded him with an internship at the New York Times. Once that dried up, they literally ended up sending him to Australia. or They sent him somewhere out of the country. He eventually ends up in San Francisco, where I'm sure he's very happy. He's a copy editor or something for Levi Strauss. He's disappeared from the journalism profession. They used him to do the hit on me. And once they were done using him, they tossed the condom in the, in the toilet and discarded him. That's what happened. At least they used protection. 
They did. I mean, I could go on and on and on Please about the don't. Greg Howard guy. <laughs> He's disappeared. Career's over. They discarded him once they were done using him. You know, the Newsweek guy, the New Yorker guy, they just all caught up in, well, it's funny. I could tell a long story on the New Yorker guy because he's friends with Skipper and John Walsh. He was carrying out a favor for Skipper and John Walsh to do a finishing hit piece on me. And that's why there's all these stories about, why didn't Whitlock cooperate with the New Yorker? Because I figured out who sent him. Again, I'm not, I know that I'm a target. I was smart enough to figure out like, well, damn, Skipper and John Walsh done sent somebody to do a hit piece on me. And so I pulled the plug on it. People don't understand just how dirty this business is and what people will do. None of these things that you see written in these corporate media platforms, somebody has bought and paid for that. None of that stuff's organic. Somebody has asked for that. There's a favor being passed along. There's an agenda being passed along. I've seen it all firsthand with my own eyes. I'm not speculating about anything that I'm talking about. I'm talking about what I have experienced with my own career and with my own two eyes. There's a rig job in the media. Certain people are targeted. I've been profiled, and everybody understands exactly who I am. Hell, they understood it before I fully understood it. Like, there's some things that have been planted in Jason Whitlock from his grandmother Mm -hmm. at 25th Street Baptist Church that will never go away. They figured it out and was like, we got to do something about this dude because, one, he's talented, and, two, his core beliefs are unshakable, and his core beliefs are in direct contradiction to what we believe in and are trying to impose on the media and through social engineering with the rest of America, we have to take this guy out. We can't have black people looking to him as a credible voice. We don't want black people thinking the way he does. We want to disconnect black people from their religious beliefs, all of their morality, and Jason Whitlock is a threat to that, and he must be stopped. It's not an accident Mission accomplished. that our music is Uh-oh. as degenerate Uh-oh. and as satanic as it is. It's go. not an accident. This is all orchestrated. There's not little black dudes in the ghetto going, man, how can I make some satanic, degenerate music that'll have black people think killing black people is the greatest Listen thing in the Jay-Z. world and selling dope is the greatest thing there in the world? This is all orchestrated and planned and they deplatform and discredit any black man who has the balls to stand against it. And they identified me and, and looked at and Skipper, good guy, good into he's, he's all he's looking at in 2013 is my talent and like he can pull this off. They let this man know very quickly, no nah, man, you done messed up. That dude right there, he cannot be empowered. He can't be in charge of some platform. You have to correct this, and we will destroy Jason Whitlock. And if you don't step in here and help us finish him off, we'll destroy you too. Jason, let me ask you a question here, because I'm listening to this, and you're saying everybody knows that the game is rigged. The deck is stacked. You know that the deck is stacked stacked against you, but everybody don't know that. You can't blame some of these guys for not knowing 
that that the game is stacked. You can't blame some of these guys for taking the paycheck. You know, you just said yourself, man, these guys took the paycheck. They, they, their careers advanced. You have to be the bigger man and look over them. Am I right or wrong? Jim, I have done that and have tried to live that way most of my career. The Greg Howard guy got so far out of bounds, I did come at him directly again. Sorry, okay, you want to do some research on me? I'll do some research on you. Let me dox you. Let me find out what you've been arrested for. And let me put that into the air. And so, but, but, so there's at some point, you have to draw a line in the sand and say, I ain't, I, there's only so much of this I'm going to take. And keep in mind, all the advice, when this was going on the two years I was at ESPN, all the advice I kept getting, the, the John Kozner guy, who was the guy I directly reported to, used to work for David Stern at the, M, at the NBA, has since left ESPN. He's a clever chess player, very clever. Hats off to him because okay. he, he's a chess player. But he, looking at all the crap being thrown at me, he managed Skipper and all the other executives into thinking that if Jason Whitlock responds to any of this, if he defends himself in any way, that shows how selfish he is and that it's not about the undefeated, it's about Jason Whitlock. He had me locked and handcuffed the entire time I was at ESPN. I couldn't say anything or defend myself. People were smearing my character every which way they could, and I was just supposed to sit there like Jesus on a cross and just, Father, forgive them. They know not what thou do or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. That's They know not what they, they do. Know, yeah, they know not what they do. I'm just supposed to sit there and take it. And he had me handcuffed in a way that if I didn't, he could say, see, look how selfish Jason Whitlock is. These guys are clever at what they do. And so I do look across, not at these writers and the other people that are in on the plot and take the paycheck. I look at the public and don't get mad at them because they don't understand what's going on. Because if you tell them, they still can't fathom it and understand. Well, why would they do that? Why would they have time to? Aren't these liberals, aren't they on our side? And when you try to explain to them, no, nah, man. Anybody that places no standards of behavior on you mm. does not have your best interest. Jim, you're mm. a father of two. Yes, sir. Do you not have standards for the two boys you love? If they're going to be up under my roof, yes. You have standards that you want them to meet yes. because you know if they can't meet these standards, they're never going to survive in this world. They will not survive in this world. And so... Look at what the liberals have done in terms of black black people. Y'all have no standards. Anything y'all do, we can blame on white racism. It's not your fault. Anything you do it's is acceptable. It's not their fault, Jason. Come on, man. Jay Z told him. What did he say? Do as do what do as thou wilt. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. Be honest. It's not their fault. These kids nowadays they have no what's the word accountability. Why? What are you doing? Me? Why? Why are you? Why did you do that? Oh, because I was doing me. That, that's our society, man. So I, I guess my question to you is, would you say that some of this has to do with these young kids? I mean, it, it, it's, it's this generation. It's this new age that we're coming through, man. I mean, because I see that you've you you, you, you you've been trying to, you you hanging out with these young guys. Greg Howard, I don't know how old he is. Uh, he went off on the rails on you. I remember back in the day when I first started at Fox, little dude with the pink shirt on, what's his name? Brandon Newman. Not okay. a little dude. Okay, well, whatever. Big yeah. dude with the pink shirt. That's yeah. even worse. Yeah. 
And then I see you this weekend, you beefing with little Patrick Mahomes. <laughs> well, what's his name? Little Gary Sheffield Jr. Why was you funking with this dude on Twitter this weekend? Why can't you pick on somebody your own size, Jason? First of all, Gary Sheffield, you better pick your weight up. You messing with a heavyweight, all right? Stick in your weight class, Sheffield. That Look. shit was embarrassing. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I had to say that. Greg Howard, I think at the time, 27, 28 years old. Young man. I'm trying to reach back. Certainly, Brandon Newman, who played football at Ball State, played four years at Notre Dame, one year at Ball State. I met him when he was a Ball State football player. Young guy that I'm trying to give an opportunity. Sheffield, I tried to get him hired at Fox Sports originally. Then I... I remember when you met Sheffield's yeah. people, when you took up for him. Yeah, brought him into Fox Sports and I do shows up for the interview. <laughs> dressed like a clown. I took him down to I remember that. Yeah. I took him down to wardrobe. I had him put a sport coat on him and a shirt and all. Anyway, I I'm not gonna he he's a kid. I'm gonna leave him alone. I'm trying to leave him alone. But yes, trust me, this is something I think about all the time. You reach back and you try to help young people. And there are some examples here where I feel like I've been burned. But I have to remember Darnell Smith. My guy. From my high school, from my apartment complex, not even in the village. <laughs> Played football at Ball State. Right. Awesome, great young man. And Darnell, for those of you who don't remember, played the role of me and uh, Marcellus's little brother on Speak for Yourself, took him straight out of Indianapolis, brought him onto our show, put him on TV. Phenomenal job. Phenomenal big dude young with the man. big smile. Yeah. Phenomenal <laughs> young man. Nina Davis, two-time All-American basketball player at Baylor. Kim Mulkey, the Baylor coach at the time, recommends that I hire Nina, young woman, Great family, met her family, met her mom, came out to Los Angeles, and maybe the dad too, but I, definitely the mom. And Nina, awesome job. Nina, good people. Now an assistant coach at Middle Tennessee State, but we brought Nina on to the Fox Sports show, had big plans for her, then COVID came in and kind of short-circuited all of that. But awesome young person, you know, going to be a head basketball coach in college basketball sooner rather than later. And so there's been a lot of success stories in terms of reaching out to young people and having them do what they're supposed to do. Greg Howard, just, I got burned. Brandon Newman, <laughs> I got burned and it, it it just shocked me. It came from out of nowhere. I don't think you got burned with Brandon. Brandon made a choice. No, I got burned, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> I gave this young dude. <laughs> I'm sorry. I gave this young dude some advice, and the next thing you know, I'm in human resources. <laughs> That's your fault. You thought you was talking to a black man. <laughs> no, I'm not gonna let you go there with Brandon. <laughs> but anyway, oh, we talking. About, I'm sorry. Oh, we talking. About, I'm sorry. I, I got out of line there. I'm sorry. Yeah, go I'm ahead. not gonna. My fault. But he just Brandon's interesting dude. Get, you know, I don't know yeah. if you know this, but like Brandon went over to Barstool. And got into it with Dave Portnoy. The, the I thought he got into it while he was on a bar stool. 
<laughs> no, he okay. was. Right, so he I was got that story all messed up. Go ahead. He was at Barstool Sports and and brought Portnoy that same energy he brought me, and that didn't go well. Brandon, just young dude that made a mistake. I, it's a mistake I could have never made. I'm too loyal for that. But Brandon's a good kid. Yes, he if is. anybody out there is listening, if if a guy ever makes a move to try to get back into sports media or whatever, he's worth taking a chance on. Very well-groomed guy wearing a bright pink shirt. <laughs> he's he's worth taking a chance on. I've said all I'm going to say about Sheffield. How'd you uh, like his wedding? Whose? Brandon. <laughs> I, I Would you stop it, man? <laughs> I mean, damn, everything you did for the man, he didn't invite you to his wedding? <laughs> he was letting me know, man. No, well, you learned real yeah, quick, didn't you? <laughs> Hey, what the Bible says, you can show you better than I can tell you. You learned <laughs> with that one. He let me know. <laughs> I trust not. That's just one gift he saved me from having to buy. I'm too old for weddings. Look, young people, man, are a mixed bag. But I, I wouldn't even put it all on just young people, man. Last week when we did the podcast, I talked about the heat that I generate. Right. And I was talking about Dan Levitard and tr- and trying to get people to understand why. To me, Dan made some decisions about, man, that's a level of heat I can't be involved with. That's too hot for me. And I don't say that as if he's a coward or disloyal. Every man knows himself what level of heat he can take or what level of scrutiny he can take. Because, you know, one thing I've tried to explain to people about this era we're living in, the information era, the internet era, the surveillance era that we're living in, there are no secrets anymore, Jim. None. None. I'm talking about if you think that people don't know what you've typed into your search engine, you're a fool. They know every website you've visited. They've read your DMs and text messages. And so we're living in an era where all secrets are open. It's just when do people choose to expose them. And so that makes the risk of being close to a fire that much more dangerous because any one of us can be exposed at any time, whatever our secrets are, they can expose them at any time. It's not like I am some kind of daredevil that gets off on living on the extreme or the dangerous side. It's a strategy on my part to live transparently. Mm Because I know I don't have any secrets. And so I don't want anybody thinking I'm some perfect person that doesn't do this or never has been to Vegas, never been to a strip club, never been to the champagne room, never been to the champagne room and said, hey, man, watch. Oh, not hey, man, but hey. hey uh. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm just talking. Tell me, do they serve champagne in the champagne room? No, but I, let me finish my statement. I just, because again, I'm just, I live transparent. I've been in the champagne room and cut the deal to take it back to the hotel room. And so I'm just telling you, I, I live transparently because I don't want, I know that our secrets are open now. I'm unmarried, so I get to live transparently. Other people, their personalities aren't built for that level of transparency. Their secrets are too explosive. And so they choose like, man, look at that fire Whitlock got going. That's too hot for me. Let me get some distance and some space. 
And so what I say that is like, even a Brandon Newman who doesn't have near the risk that Dan Levitard has, his personality is not built for the heat that I generate. He, and that's not a knock on him. He's young. He's married. Married, and I mean this without any disparagement, married to a white woman. That right there is enough to be dealing with without standing next to me and having people who really want to get at me that's like, man, Woodlock lives too transparent. Who, can, who close to him can we get at? Brandon Newman, he don't want that, he don't want that smoke. And I don't blame him for not wanting that smoke. Not a, and so he got away from that smoke in a way I wouldn't have done it, but he did it. He, that's how he got away from that smoke. And and even... Gary Sheffield seemed like he wanted that smoke. He, he seemed like he wanted that yeah, smoke. He, he, he wants the attention. He wanted to whoop your old ass. He wants some attention and all that, and I'm just, I'm just not going to give it to him. But the Greg Howard, if I were willing to give him a job at the undefeated, he would have told them people at Deadspin, go F yourself. Okay. But my read on Greg Howard was for what I was trying to do at the undefeated is like, you got to be more comfortable with your blackness than he was. He wasn't comfortable with it. He wasn't comfortable with any part of who he was. And I was like, that ain't going to work because we're going to build. When I was running the undefeated, we were going to build some fires and there was going to be some fires. We weren't going to be ignored. We weren't going to put out sidebar stories and stuff that's easily ignored. We were going to do work that mattered. Greg Howard's not, his personality is not built for that. He, he's not standing on enough to, to withstand that kind of fire. And so I tend to look for people who know exactly who they are, comfortable in their blackness. To some degree, it's like a bonus and you know, love to see it. When you're standing on faith, when you're standing on something bigger than you, Jesus, that's when I know your foundation is sturdy and built for heat. People that stand with God, they're not afraid of the fire. They know that's what comes along with it. And that that fire is actually cleansing. That that, that fire actually burns away a lot of the bad stuff. And so, and again, I'm, I'm not arguing some are better than others or I'm not because anybody that knows me knows I, I I certainly and maybe I should develop one but I don't have some kind of purity test I, I got no problem working with anybody with faith no faith gay straight whatever there's no purity test but I will say this I do know there's a profile of people who will betray me they're not really standing on too much Jason, let me ask you this. Um, Greg Howard, we use the name Brandon Newman, Gary Sheffield. These are all young black men. Now, one of the things we say about our young black men is we say that the older men, the older generation, that we don't help them. We don't reach back and reach back and try to pull them up. Well, it seems like you kind of tried to reach back. It seems like you tried to help. It seems like you tried to pass on some knowledge to some people. It seems like you tried to do your part to people, but it seems like it didn't turn out like Jim. Like there's you say a, there's a saying that no good no good deed goes unpunished. I don't believe that, but there is some truth in that cliche. You've met Dante Love. I met Dante. Dante Love, one of the coolest brothers I've ever met in my life. <laughs> Jim, that, that's that's my adopted son. Be careful. 
Uh, I believe he's told me. You do know I'm Jason's adopted son, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Dante Love. Want some pancakes? <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> Stop it, Jim. Dante Love, great, one of the greatest football players in Ball State history. Broke his neck in 2008 playing against Indiana University. He caught a ball, uh, defensive back from my high school. What, Corey, help me out with the name. Chris Atkins, yeah, from my high school, the defensive back for Indiana. But it, Dante broke his neck. I was at the game, went to the hospital. I knew Dante, but I didn't really know Dante until, because I know all the Ball State players, but I didn't really know him till that night, breaks his neck. That night he thinks that there's a possibility he's going to be paralyzed the rest of his life. And I told him, I was like, Dante, and Dante was headed to the NFL. I was like, dude, I got you. I, I'm, I'm going to help you transition to life after football. And you did. It's been one of the greatest experiences of my life, watching this dude grow up. He was not perfect. Got him a job with San Diego State, the football team, when Brady Hulk was the head coach. He didn't handle that well. Got out to San Diego. And, and you know, me, I'm so far removed from reality that I do things that I don't even understand what I'm doing because I've lived such a pampered life for a, a long time. But when he, I'm living in Kansas City at the time, and I give him one of my cars, a Cadillac CTS, Cadillac. to drive to San Diego. And so in my mind, I'm just like, I'm just giving him a car so he can get around. In his mind, he's 22 in San Diego in a Cadillac CTS. He thinks that's a license to chase P-U-S-S-Y. And so he goes to- say? <laughs> He goes to San Diego and doesn't concentrate on being a football coach. He's a kid from Cincinnati that's in a Cadillac CTS, Good looking kid. But we can take those kind of mistakes. Because I've those. made them. There you uh, go. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. Go ahead. I've been I'm just young. saying we've made the, we've yeah. been there. Go yeah, ahead. I've been young and dumb. Go ahead. And so it doesn't work out at San Diego State. And Brady Hoke then gets the job at Michigan. He doesn't take Dante to Michigan because he's done a poor job at San Diego State. And so I can Are you sure Dante wrote it like this on his resume with you putting it all out there like that? <laughs> well, I, let me just tell you, because the story just get, it gets better. So Dante comes to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. I got him a job at the gym that I worked at, some Equinox. And some girl that at Equinox let him rent a room from her down the street from me. And again, because I live off in La La Land, I'm not thinking like, man, Dante is living with some UCLA student driving a Cadillac CTS. What could be a problem? He got life licked, and he just looks real comfortable and like, wow. And so I had to shake Dante up, snatch everything away from him, put him, you know, I could, I made him drive his car down to my apartment, get all his shit out of it, took the keys, and I was like, good luck, homie. I heard this. <laughs> and story. That changed Dante's life. That dude is one of the best, most reliable, greatest human beings I know. Fathers. Father. Hopefully he's going to marry this, this the kid. I think is nine years old now. 
Lil Dante, the whole him, the baby mama, the bit. It's anytime I see him, I just want to cry because I've seen this journey since 2008. And I just seeing a person just grow into a man, a responsible man. Dante, faith in God and understanding religion ex- exceeds mine. And calls me and tells me things I don't know. I've seen young people get a chance, stumble, get up, stumble, get up, and then run. I could tell this. My cousin Josh, that I, Jim, I don't, he came I, you, and lived he with came me to Kansas City and you, lived with me for two from, years yeah, from and, high school. Yeah, and I I saw Josh went back to Indianapolis, got involved in gang activity, spent three years in the joint. I mean, you talk about somebody really stumbling, but the person Josh is today, the father Josh is today to little Josh, his woman, Ebony, I take great pride in that. And so there's reasons why I keep reaching back. And even though my hand gets burned on the stove, I've seen the success stories. I've seen people run with the ball and do amazing things. And so I'm never not going to do that. I, you know, I could sit here and talk. Wendell Brown, locked up in China. I remember uh, that. You know. I remember and that. getting him out of that prison in China, one of the greatest things I'll ever do. And seeing him reconnect with his son after spending three years in prison in China on some BS. The joy, his mother, I get a note from his mother every other month for the past two years. Right. There's reasons why I'm I'm always going to look to help and to give back. Some people don't take advantage of it. Some people abuse their relationship with me. If I was perfect, I could sit here and just wag a finger and say, oh, they're all, but I'm not perfect. I'm, I'm sure there's people... Just got stories about me and the and the BS I've done. Anyway. I mean, I, I agree with you if you say you're not perfect. I mean, if you was perfect, I would say, here, turn this water into wine because the show is almost over, but we know that you can't do that. You'll come up short. Dude, I, I think, let me see here. I think we're good. I think we're good. Uh, I think that's all we're going to do until July the 6th. I can't wait, man. Seven, eight days away. I can't wait. The studio's coming along. I awesome. They put carpet wait. down today. Anyway, that's all I got.